The Soldier's Tale is a podcast aimed at giving veterans a place to tell their stories as they see fit. We have chosen to leave these interviews mostly unedited, and given the nature of the subject matter, this podcast may contain some sensitive material. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Soldier's Tale. I'm Stuart Smith. In our first episode, I speak with my friend Matt Vance, who spent six years in the Army as a cavalry scout and experienced combat firsthand during a total of 27 months deployed in Iraq. Matt wrote a book about his time in the military called The Funny Side of War. As you may guess from the title, it's not the typical war story of heroism and loss. Instead, it offers a look inside those moments when combatants have to find something to laugh at in order to get through the madness. On today's show, Matt shares a few of those funny stories and also tells us why he thinks it is so important for soldiers and civilians alike to talk about the hard things in life that we shouldn't face alone. So first of all, thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. To start out with, just give me a little bit of a uh, little bit of background on yourself, where you grew up, where you went to school. Yeah, pretty stereotypical. I mean, I was just an average t-shirt and jeans type of kid. I grew up in Woodbridge, Virginia. I went to Hilton High School there in Hilton or in Woodbridge. Graduated in 2000. I went on to Christopher Newport University in Newport News. Graduated with uh, majoring in communication studies in 2004. Um, earlier in that school year, my mom had passed away, and you know, ever since 9/11, I had thought about joining the military. So when she passed, it was kind of like uh, I, I just felt free to do, you know, go on some crazy adventure. And so I enlisted during spring break of my. Uh, my senior year, and about a month after graduation in 2004, I went off to basic training at Fort Knox, Kentucky. Uh, graduated there in October after completing OSUT, and then I was stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington, where I remained for the next six and a half years. I was a cavalry scout in the Army, and I did 27 months worth of deployments all in Iraq, and then I got out in 2010 and for the next four years I was a security independent contractor overseas back in the same country in Iraq and I recently stopped doing that in August and now I'm just taking some time off. So yeah so I want to go back a little bit to that decision to join the military Uh, you know you mentioned uh, after 9-11 and you know how how much did that play into it you said you you joined in was it 2004 did I hear that correctly? Yes. Okay so that was after you got out of college right? Oh, I enlisted uh, during spring break. I graduated mm-hmm. a couple months later, and then basic started about a month after graduation. Sure. So, so you know, you, you said you wanted kind of a, to go off on a crazy adventure. How, how much of it was just that, and how much of it was some kind of uh, sense of patriotism or a, a call to duty that you felt or anything like that? It's kind of like I was just waiting for the right time, the right moment to to do it, to pull the trigger, as they say, because all when I grew up as a kid, both my grandfathers were in the military, and I'd always ask them questions, sure. and they'd say, "You don't need to know that," and that's the worst thing you can tell a curious little kid because he's like, "Well, I want to know." Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Uh, um, so I was always curious about it, and then nine eleven happened, and yeah, a little sense of patriotism kicked in. I even talked to a marine recruiter, but you know, I promised my family I'd finish school first, and by the time I got ready to graduate, um, I was looking more towards joining the Army. And then after the passing of my mom, I just felt 
you know, like I wanted to get away from everyone and everything I'd ever known, but I, I wanted to go do something meaningful. And it was our generation's fight, so I decided to enlist and see what happens. I hear you. So tell me a little bit more about basic training. I'm, I'm really interested in what that process is like. You know, what, what are those first few days like when you're, when you're just showing up there, you don't know anybody? Um, you know, any kind of new change like that, whether it's a new job or moving or starting at a new school or whatever, that's always scary. But, you know, with basic, I imagine it's, yeah. it's all that stuff, plus you're getting yelled at and doing a ton of push-ups, right? So what, what is that like? Yes, it, it, was, it, was, uh, it was, basic training was hilarious to me. Um, you know, I imagine this world where these drill sergeants literally beat the snot out of you physically, but that wasn't such the case. However, they did use the most colorful language I had ever heard in my life. Sure. And uh, they did it to motivate us to do things and you know the when I first joined basic it was or started basic excuse me um, I was excited but nervous because I didn't know what I was doing I didn't know what I was getting into I didn't know anybody so I was very excited to see what would happen and it was just a world of how much can you learn in a short amount of time and then we're going to kick you off to some unit so one of the I guess the more hilarious things Things that they do to you is sleep deprivation because that's when people really start to go a little loopy so that was something i had to get used to because i don't think anybody coming out of college likes to lose sleep because we value sure. that a lot is, is that trying to sort of replicate some of the situations you're going to be in yes the tempo uh, when you do deploy the tempo is dictated by the enemy so you might get a whole 24 hours off to yourself or you might be awake for 24 straight hours moving around so they like to really mess with your sleep cycle as much as possible and just get you get your body accustomed to that. So what was the relationship like uh, that, that you had with the drills, the, the drill sergeants there? So each platoon was assigned two drill sergeants, and occasionally they would get a break and somebody else would come in. But for the most part, we had two drill sergeants, and I was very lucky. It was like a big brother, and when we messed up, they slapped us around and said, hey, stop screwing up, kid. They're very well intended in everything that they did. They didn't just make us do push-ups for the heck of it like some drill sergeants I saw. They did it when we messed up. We needed to learn. If you do that, there are consequences. And I love my drill sergeants to death. I think the most important thing they taught me was in combat, you can't expect anything. Like the, Nothing that you think is going to happen is going to happen. Nothing goes to plan. You know, you can't go pick your own group of guys. You, you go to war with a platoon. You're stuck with those guys. So if you like them or hate them, you're stuck with them. You got to watch each other's back. Mm -hmm. So it's not about making your team. It's about making the best out of every guy on your team. Everyone's got a talent. You got to find it and use it. Well, that, that leads me into, I'm going to plug your book a couple of times. I've been reading your book. I haven't finished it, but uh, The Funny Side <laughs> of War for the Sick and Demented by Matt Vance. Uh, mm -hmm. I think you can get it on Amazon, and uh, we'll, we'll talk maybe a little more about it as we go along. But what you just said uh, reminded me of, of a story in the book about uh, a guy, I guess the name is Ritalin. Uh, and I was yes, wondering if you yes. could just tell me a little bit about that incident and, and why that incident was so, it seemed really important to you. I mean, you basically set it aside as a chapter unto itself. I guess it showed loyalty. And in that, Ritalin was the complete opposite of a loyal person and not who you wanted to fight side by side with. Uh, he's a little scrappy kid. He was a pathological liar. But of course, we didn't know any better because we didn't have internet access. So we, where someone told us, we had to believe. Sure. Or we could just think whatever he wanted. So came time where, God forbid, somebody had some chew, which was forbidden in basic training. So some poor guy got caught with chew. Yeah, and card cardinal sin. 
Yeah, Cardinal Sin apparently, because if the drill sergeants can't have it, we can't have it. So they started hunting around and, hey, who did this? Who did this? They found the chew. So Ritalin <laughs> didn't even have the guts to be a rat. He pointed at me to be a rat and he said, hey, Vance knows. <laughs> so the drill sergeants <laughs> came up to me. And of course, I had a decision to make. The guy who brought the yeah. dip in somehow uh, smuggled it in there. <laughs> He's a very good friend of mine. So I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. There's no way you can prove I know what you're talking about. So you sound kind of dumb right now. And so they pulled me into their office and they started what's called smoking me, uh, which is just doing a lot of rigorous exercises. And the the guy who was my friend, he walked in and stopped it because he was like, no, 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 this is on me. I'm not going to you know, have one of my buddies hurting because I screwed up. It was all me. He got punished. He got Article 15. And then I went into the bay where everybody left the room. And that's where it was me and Ritalin. Uh, kind of squared off. Chose for, yeah, we squared off and uh, I ran at him and he, he took off and stayed away from me the rest of basic. <laughs> How did that whole situation sort of reflect to you the importance of, I guess, I guess it came to a question of trust, you know, like you mentioned earlier. How, mm-hmm. how did that kind of reflect what you would la- later learn about comradeship and being in, in combat with guys? You have to be able to accept the consequences of any action that you do and you have to live with those consequences. And in that case, you know, I, I had to, you know, do I want to lie and possibly lose rank or do I want to lose a friend? And in no circumstances will I ever want to lose a friend. And of course that had nothing to do with combat, but at the same time, that's a mentality you take into combat. I'm going to protect the man next to me, no matter what. And Ritalin showed that he couldn't do that, but my other buddy showed that he could. And I wanted to, you know, replicate that for everybody around me. Cool. You have to be able to trust the guy next to you. Yeah, I hear you. So moving on, uh, you know, like I said, I've, I've been reading the book and, it's I have to say it's kind of it seems kind of miraculous that you survived this whole ordeal, but um, I haven't actually gotten to the combat in the book, so I'm just wondering how you survived <laughs> how you survived basic and then really the the process of being integrated into a unit after you completed basic um, that was some pretty pretty rough stuff. Tell me a little bit about that process. Uh, just going through like just going through basic and getting to my unit or yeah, once you got to your unit, you kind of talked about you had this. Um, this quote here where you said it's not the process that counts but how everyone handles it and basically sort of just the initiation of i guess you said you were you were stationed somewhere in washington is that right oh yeah um fort lewis uh, washington which is just south of tacoma sure so you were basically you and some other guys sort of fresh out of basic were being integrated into units that had veterans who had come back from deployments is that right i see <laughs> yeah so you know we walked into you know, we thought we were a bunch of tough guys. We, we graduated basic, OSA, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, you come out of there feeling pretty good about yourself. But when you get to your unit and these, these guys are coming back from their first deployment and they're the first unit of their kind, it was the first striker brigade to ever deploy. So they came back uh, and they, they put us in our place really quick. They would play all kinds of games. You know, we'd walk outside and they would point to somebody and say, you're going to fight them right now. And wow. you, you had no choice. So you just, it was funny because you walk out back and there's about 40 guys standing out there and two guys just run at each other full speed and start beating the snot out of each other. Then uh, there's other circumstances where if you mess up, they'll give you a task like holding a rock. And if you lose that rock, you're going to fight a lot of people that day. Another ritual is to just stand around in a circle and people get called out. All new guys have to go in there and fight. And some of these things could be seen as too too much or too violent, whatever. But as new guys, we welcomed it because we wanted to prove ourselves because we knew they were combat veterans and we were nothing. 
And yeah. we had to prove to them that we're at least willing to fight and we want to learn and we want to be there with them. But at the same time, there's a couple guys that didn't believe this was right. And they came out of basic thinking, you can't pick on me. This isn't nice. And those guys were pretty much ostracized because they weren't willing to swallow their pride, humiliate themselves. You know, they were too cool for school. <laughs> I got you, yeah. You mentioned that the, the unit you integrated into was a striker unit, and that was the, the first of its kind to be deployed. Explain to me exactly yes. what a striker unit is. Okay, so a striker is a vehicle, and it's a 20-ton vehicle. Imagine a, a big green rectangular box with eight wheels on it. And it runs off a, a Hemi, and it's extremely quiet. And the Iraqis went on to call us the ghost riders because they couldn't hear us sneaking up on them. And in this vehicle, in the front of it, you have a driver, and he's down inside the vehicle. He's got his hatch closed. On top of the vehicle in the middle, you have a gunner, and he is exposed from the waist up. And he has a 50 cal or a Mark 19. Those are big crew-serve weapons that do a lot of damage. And then in the back are two what we call hatch plug, two guys that dismount. And one guy is the truck commander. He kind of guides the truck if he's in the lead of a convoy. Otherwise, the gunner leads the truck. And then inside the vehicle, you have dismounts. And, you know, our primary job in the striker unit is to patrol. And if there's an issue, you drop the back ramp and dismounts run out. That's what a, a striker looks like. So it's a really kind of an agile and adaptable force. Very basically. agile, very adaptable. And I remember reading an article when it first came out. and Some high-ranking guy said it was the worst uh, vehicle the Army has created. And I couldn't, after you know 27 months deployed, it saved my life and so many other lives so many times. And I highly recommend it stay in the Army. So tell me a little bit, you know, your your book, as I said, is called The Funny Side of War. Tell me a couple of funny stories from, from your time in Iraq. Um, I guess whew, a lot of the things that I think about are, are just little like spur of the moment things like, oh, there's a donkey and we have nothing to do. Let's get the biggest, fattest guy we have and see if he can ride that donkey. <laughs> and then we're going to keep saying ride that donkey. Well, we uh, all know that every every good funny story starts off with, oh, hey, look, there's a donkey. Sure. Yeah, you can't you can't go wrong there. You know, there's a goat or, you know, a little more demented. You know, we had non-lethal paintball rounds to deter kids from coming close to a scene that we wanted to, you know, prevent collateral damage. So we just shot paintball rounds at them to keep them away from us. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes bored people would shoot at animals. And the <laughs> the effects of that are <laughs> sometimes funny and sometimes sad. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> You know, if you shoot a pigeon, it's not going to make it. And we learned that the hard way. <laughs> um, but other moments are, you know, with the kids, we had a lot of fun in moments with the kids. We would uh, have dance-offs with them. We'd got a guy who could break dance. He'd go out there and do a little thing, and then the kids would try to emulate it, and obviously it went terribly for them. We'd pull pranks on guys. Some guys were scared to death of rodents, so we'd find their sleeping bags. And we'd get a, a ball of socks and tie a knot around it with a, the rest of the the uh, the string in there and we'd stick it in their in their sleeping bag and then before they got in there and when they went into bed we had this long rope or string and we would start pulling on the the ball of socks and just to see their reaction screaming like little girls because they thought there was a rat inside their sleeping bag <laughs> funny how, I mean, how just, certain things certain things just do it for some people i guess yeah it's it's the random moments when you're having a bad day or you've been up for too much too many hours and or too many days and somebody pulls a prank on somebody. And even if it's messed up, you just, you just start crying laughing. So you, you said something I thought was 
interesting. There's definitely not a side of the Iraq war I've heard about or seen about on the news, which is uh, dance-offs between American soldiers and Iraqi children. That's, yes. that's pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, I'm just wondering what that's like, like what's your perceptions of the enemy were like and how hard it was, you know, maybe from a tactical standpoint, but really more from a psychological standpoint where uh, being in a situation where the enemy is not necessarily easily distinguishable from the rest of the population. What, what, is, what is that like? It's frustrating, uh, especially in an urban environment because sure. every hole in a wall, every window, every building you can't see into is a sniper's paradise. They could be anywhere. At the same time, you know, the fight in Iraq was a lot of complex ambushes, and they were from insurgents. And insurgents can come from anywhere in the world, and they make their money by videotaping attacks on Americans. Problem is, they have to enjoy that money somehow, so they plan their escape route first. So by the time we figure out where the fire's coming from, they're gone. And, you know, they hide behind civilians, they hide within communities and schools, and the enemy, for the most part, was a shadow. It was very hard to find, very frustrating. And when I finally did get to kill the enemy, uh, it was like stepping on ants. But I felt no emotion towards those that I killed because they were trying to kill us. And, you know, when you're rolling around getting shot at all the time and blown up and, you know, when you finally get to find the bastards, it's a pretty good feeling. Urban Iraq is a very frustrating place. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to take a quick pause from the interview and remind you that Matt does have a book out. It's called The Funny Side of War for the Sick and Demented. If you're enjoying what you hear from the interview today, please feel free to go over to Amazon.com and search Matt Vance or The Funny Side of War for the Sick and Demented. Okay, back to the interview. I didn't know so much about that tactic of, you said that some of these insurgents would essentially, like once you saw the fire, they were already gone. How how did that work exactly? Are they just setting up explosives and then getting out of there or what? Sometimes it could be different. It depends who's attacking you, too. I mean, within Iraq, you had Al Qaeda, you had Josh Almaty militia, which their leader was Muqtada al Sadr. You might have heard of him on the news. Uh, Badr Brigade, they have all kinds of different organizations, even local militias that just get spooked in the night, might start doing the prey and spray, the death blossom, as we call it. And they don't even know it's Americans they're shooting at. They think it's insurgents moving in to kill them. So. You know, sectarian violence was there. Sometimes we got caught in the middle of two groups of people firing, and we got hit in the middle, so we started firing at both groups. Um, it's very chaotic, and it's hard to explain, but um, just, just pure chaos when it comes to the enemy in Iraq, because you don't exactly know who you're fighting against. And sometimes it's just a scared guy who thinks that it's Al-Qaeda there to kill him. And, you, you know, you mentioned uh, some of your interactions with the kids, and I believe you have a, a couple of stories about that in the book as well. Tell me a little more about those uh, relationships, if you could call them that, um, how you dealt with being around non-combatants and trying to sort of show that you're, you're there to do a job and you're, and you're trying to help and do, you know, do your best. What were those interactions like? Uh, most of the interactions were, at first, they were very standoffish because we didn't know how to communicate. We didn't know if we were speaking to the enemy because the enemy hides with the people. Um, but when dealing with kids or local populace, um, it, at first, there was a lot of standoff because we didn't know exactly who we were talking to. But we're in our AO, our area of operation, for so long with the Army. It's you know anywhere from 9 to 15 months. You get to know the population. You get to know who's supposed to be there, who's not supposed to be there. Why is this asset sweating right now? You know, when there's a, a guy staring at him from across the street, let's go talk to that guy. Um, you get a feel for the people 
But at no point do you ever let your guard down because there's no way of knowing who's right, who's good and who's bad. You just try to get a sixth sense for it, you know? You know, we would, you, when you go to war, you might be a scout or infantry, but you become a jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. So, because there's no nobody else there to help you except your platoon yeah. or maybe your your company. So, you become a crime scene investigator. You see, you know, something happened like sectarian violence. So, you go to the scene, you investigate, take pictures, do whatever you have to do. Then you start building packets. You talk to the people in the community and you build packets on the community so you know exactly where people are, who's supposed to be there, who's not supposed to be there. So at least you get a feel for if something's out of the norm. And for the most part, the local populace always tried to help us. It's just sometimes you get bad apples or they are mm-hmm. threatened, their family's kidnapped and they say, hey, we got your, your whole family, so if you don't go plant this bomb by the American striker, we're going to kill your whole family. So then that guy becomes an enemy. Yeah. You know, it, it's unfortunate, but if they pose a threat, they get taken down yeah. or captured. You know, whatever we can do. We always try to capture first so we can get information and build intel on the bigger picture. Sure. Uh, but if it's a guy with an AK-47 or an RPG pointed at you, you got to take him down. Yeah. What you're describing sounds like, you know, a lot of just sort of figuring it out as you go. Kind of it, it, it reminded me of what you said that uh, your drills had told you in basic, which was, you know, you, you can't really prepare for combat. You can't really prepare for this environment. Yeah. So how much of it was just being there and, and just figuring out what to do on a day to day basis? Uh, you know, day to day, you had anywhere from two to four missions. And the mission could be just do a three hour patrol. You just walk around or you drive around a certain neighborhood. Uh, it could be to go raid a house at night. It could be to go do recon on a house, take pictures of the area. But, you know, nothing does go to plan and ne- never goes to plan. So you just have to be able to, you know, in your pre-mission brief, you go through uh, contingency plans, okay? And then as you move up in rank or get to a leadership position, you have to just completely be ready to move in a different direction than you wanted to go. And you have to lead the guys to go there. So it, it can be frustrating, but at the same time, yeah, basically 90% of the time, you, you just got to be ready to be flexible. Sure. That you, yeah, one yeah. of the things I liked about the book is there at the beginning, you go through some of the terminology. Uh, some of it may be a little more colorful than we want to share on the podcast here. But, <laughs> um, but you had the, the term Charlie Mike that sounds a little bit like what mm-hmm. you're talking about now. Explain that to me a little. Charlie Mike coincides with the letters C as in Charlie and M as in Mike. And, you know, it was to us when someone says that it means continue mission. Um, so basically, let's say you're rolling around on a patrol and you hit an IED and you catch some small arms fire. You have to report it to hire back at base or the talk. And the first thing they're going to ask you is, you know, is everybody OK? And you tell them we're all good to go. We can Charlie Mike, meaning we don't have a mass casualties. Uh, we don't have to evacuate anybody. Uh, we're still in the fight. Mission can, is still a go. So it's you might hit some bumps on the road, but you can keep going. Is yeah. basically the mentality. So it's almost kind of a kind of a mantra in a way. Yeah, exactly, it's just that. Cool. So tell me a little bit about what the what the adjustment was like rotating back home. I guess for you know for leave or or whatever. You know, just com- coming back to the states or coming back to a. a a rear area or whatever. What's that adjustment like after being, you know, in combat? Well, I never took leave while I was there. Everybody's allowed uh, a couple weeks R and R. I never wanted to go because okay. I was afraid something bad was going to happen, which is kind of funny in itself. Because I guess you have to go talk to the chaplain, and he he's like our head doctor. He's like, "Are you okay, son?" So you declined <laughs> so you to make take, sure that you you declined to take R and R. 
Yes. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Was that did, was that that you, you didn't want to leave your your guys that you were? Yeah. Well, the first time I was afraid that an incompetent leader would get my guys hurt. The second time, I just didn't. I didn't want to leave and then come right back. <laughs> yeah. I just felt like that would feel be awful because it was going to be my last deployment. And I knew it, and I was like, I'm just going to get it all done in one shebang. Sure. So when you're um, deployed, how how long does that entail being deployed? It depends. It really depends what unit you're at, what branch you're in. For me, uh, my first deployment was 15 months during the surge in 06 and 07. And then my second deployment was 12 months. And that was in 2009, 2010. And so in that, in that whole time, you, you were there for 15 straight months, no R&R, no nothing. Right. That's incredible. So tell me a little bit about the dynamic between you know, your, your fellow soldiers uh, in combat as opposed to being in basic or... Um, you know, like sure. we talked about that initiation um, process. How, how is it different? How is it similar? What, what can you tell me about that? I guess the difference is, okay, so obviously you're not going to like everybody you work with. It, it never works out nicely like that. Sure. So you're going to have different cliques, different groups of guys you hang out with. So basically in Garrison, when you're in the States, you know, Friday comes along, you want to party. Someone says to the whole platoon, we're going here tonight if anyone wants to go. And the guys kind of scatter. But if you don't have plans, you go to that, that bar or that house that, mm-hmm. you know, said soldier mentioned. You pick on each other constantly. And I think that's why we're one of the best militaries in the world is because we are the biggest nitpickers. And I don't know if it's because it's a bunch of alpha males running around bumping chest, acting like <laughs> Neanderthals, or because we want to make ourselves better. But every single thing you do, even if you do something right, somebody will prove that you did something wrong. You always want to improve yourself. So yeah. in that is a lot of stressful situations. Some guys handle it well, some don't. You get a couple grudges. A couple guys don't like each other. So they're not going to hang out at the bar on Friday night when you tell everybody, hey, let's go here as a platoon. Right. Now, you go in combat, all that bickering kind of stops as far as, hey, you can improve like this. But the grudge is still there. So, you know, I don't like this guy over here. I don't like this guy. But as soon as something pops off, it's like a switch. All right. You protect everyone around you, no matter what. And you don't care about personal feelings for each other. You're willing to give yourself up to protect the guy next to you. And that's, I guess, the big difference is you might stab your buddy in the back at the bar, but you go overseas mm-hmm. and, you know, you'll give your life easily for the man next to you. And that's, I guess, because you you know that he would do the same for you, right? Absolutely. In a heartbeat. Cool. So then tell me uh, a little bit about your adjustment. I was going to say about your adjustment coming home, but you said that you actually served um, after you got, and I may have misheard you. I'm sorry if I did, but you, you served in a, a security function of some sort after being in the military is that right yeah a, um, a security independent contractor i guess if you sure. use it. Um, and that was overseas but that was in a much more relaxed environment and not very stressful at all and that was actually what i considered to be a cake job so that really mm-hmm. had no effect on me okay <laughs> uh so so tell me a little bit about the adjustment uh coming home after all of that and sort of transitioning back into civilian life I mean, you said you're kind of taking a break right now or what how how has that worked out for you Right now, it's fine. I, I think I noticed the biggest differences after each deployment, and I would fly back from Washington State to about the Washington, D.C. area to hang out with friends. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting experience, and nothing I ever thought, you know, I, I never imagined it. I actually, on the plane ride home, I wondered, like, how will people treat me? And then when I got home, a part of me felt entitled. And I had to squash that within myself real quick because, you know, nobody owes me anything. It's a volunteer thing. And you went off and did your thing, and that's cool. But if you come home and start telling crazy war stories, you're going to ostracize people. So my biggest thing was, what do I talk about to fit in? And 
it was funny because my family was very welcoming, but they kind of poked around questions and they were afraid to ask. And I was like, you can ask whatever you want. It's okay. I'm going to be completely honest with you. And then my friends, of course, larger, I have more friends than I do family. And, you know, some friends tiptoed around questions. Some friends stayed completely away from me because I, I guess they were under the impression that I would come to them and say, hey, I have all these feelings I got to talk about. And then other yeah. friends came up to me and they said, Matt, I know you've been through some stuff. I'm here for you. Otherwise, how about them Redskins? You know, <laughs> and we would just go right into it. Sure. And that and that was the best thing for me. It was just to go on like nothing happened. Uh, well, that kind of leads me to one of my other questions, which was essentially, you know, what what would you say to family members, friends of veterans who maybe uh, don't don't know what to say, essentially, you know, or are struggling to relate to a veteran? Um, what what would you say? I mean, yeah, I and that's kinda per- just yeah, that's perfectly understandable. I actually had some friends tell me like, I don't I don't know how to talk to you, Matt, and <laughs> I told them I was like, honestly, the best thing you can do is give me nothing but love. That's all you can do. You know, come up to me, say hi, how are you doing? Or how you doing? And um, if I look like I'm having a bad day, maybe you could give me a little space. You know, don't sure. prod certain questions in public. Like, hey, how many people did you kill? You know, you don't do that in public. <laughs> That's a private matter. Just do that in private. It's okay to ask questions. Uh, just do it in a uh, setting, I guess. Uh, sure. But uh, honestly, to everybody, I say just treat them normally, and issues will come out naturally. Cool. And kind of along those same lines, what would you say? to some veterans out there who might be struggling to readjust to civilian life and struggling to relate to people back at home. Sure. That's a little tougher because, you know, with the the new studies on PTSD, I'm still learning about it myself. Different guys handle different situations um, in different ways. I equate PTSD to basically a fingerprint. No two are the same, you know? Sure, yeah. I have never had a problem. You know, I come home and... I feel fine. I don't have issues. I feel the same as when I went into the military, but I know other guys have different experiences and it, it kind of messed them up. And I, I tell them the only people that will ever understand you are the guys that were there. So if you're having a bad day, don't go on the 4th of July and tell people, Hey, watch the fireworks. You know, you don't do that. You, if, if you don't respond well to explosions, take yourself out of the situation and go talk to somebody that's been there, done that, and that it can calm you down. You know, don't put it on the American people to baby you or to cure you or to guide you. They can't. They don't understand. And it's not their fault. You know, they're very grateful for your service, but they can't fix you. The people that were there fix you. Sure, you know, and uh, there's just a, there's a lot of guys that come home and I don't know if it's the movies or the books, but they come home and they feel like they should act a certain way. And I, I sometimes I got to slap them and say, "Hey, you know, you're, you're acting like a jerk. You know, it has nothing to do with PTSD. You're just being a jerk." You know? Yeah. So I guess along those lines too, what you know, what uh, what made you decide to write a book about your time in the service, um, and why did you choose to to kind of focus or, or center it on some of the funny funnier sides of your experience? I wanted to do a couple of different things. One was obviously help guys that are having a hard time because when you make mistakes, anybody in life is going to dwell on the bad things. So I try to get people past that. You know, why don't you think about the fun times? You know, they're, they're, yeah, war is awful. It's got some awful things, but I also had some amazing moments that I could never duplicate back in the States. And I'm grateful for those moments. I wanted to just help guys having a hard time and show them that there's there's better things to think about. There's things that can help you through it. You can help your buddies out. Always be there for your buddy. Uh, and just talk about it with your battle buddies, as we call them. The second reason was kind of a, it's kind of tricky. I, I've noticed over the past 14 years now that with 
war, we've got veterans, uh, we have talks about PTSD, and I think that subject, you know, we correlate the two together, and I think that's wrong because post-traumatic syndrome or post-traumatic stress it can be shared by anybody. You can be in a bad car accident. You could lose mm -hmm. a loved one. Sexual assault has been named one of the worst kinds of post-traumatic stress. So I try to tell people, like, listen, it's not just veterans that have issues, okay? Everybody has issues. And instead of using PTSD to ostracize yourself, coming home, telling your war stories to people that don't understand you, use it as a reason to connect with each other. You know, you can bring the civilian and military communities together through PTSD because everybody experiences it just in different ways. So maybe laugh about it. Maybe talk to someone and say, well, I mean, what's going through your head? Talk about what's going through your head. And then maybe you can find something together to laugh at and come together and work on and learn about the subject matter. Because I really don't think we know enough about the subject to start throwing out diagnosis to everybody that says they're, they're having a bad day. You just don't equate it to, oh, you went to war, you have PTSD. I don't think that's how it works at all. For me, it was frustrating to see guys come home and use it as an excuse. And they would tell crazy stories to people that were basically pushed away. I'm like, hey, man, you're just pushing your friends away. Like, yeah. you need them as much as they need you. A big part of it was to bring the military and civilian communities together and show them a side of military life that anyone can equate to. Because I think, or relate to, excuse me, and I think anybody can relate to funny stories. So sure. throughout the book, I don't, I don't really have a lot of war stories in the book. I didn't want to talk about war, blood, guts, heroism. There's a couple in there to remind you we're in a war zone. But at the same time, I just wanted to talk about, um, I'm pretty sure, you know, you might have heard of someone that dared another guy to drink his own urine. Okay, you don't have to go to war to do something stupid like that. So <laughs> you can all laugh at something, you know. Sure. Overall, I just wanted to help people look at the lighter side of things because yeah. I think we're just going and just, just ostracizing ourselves. Yeah, and just kind of get that conversation started in a way. Yeah, because, I mean, we got enough things in this country that are very divisive right now, and I think it's something that could actually bring us together. Absolutely. Well, that's great stuff, man. Um, uh, like I said, I've been reading it, and it's it's really good. It's really funny. Uh, it's a really good read. And like I said, we'll probably throw up a couple more plugs later on. But that's most of what I wanted to, to ask you about. I guess the final thing would just be any any parting thoughts. No, I just, uh, I encourage other veterans. It's fine if you don't want to talk about things, but I think um, a lot of guys with good heads on their shoulders can show some leadership and be completely honest with your service. Okay. You should be proud of your service. It doesn't matter if you're in a cubicle in the green zone in Baghdad typing away all day. Don't come home and tell lies about your war stories. It doesn't matter if you only saw maybe one IED in an ambush. You volunteered to serve your country. You should absolutely. be proud of that. So don't come home and start telling lies. Just come home, tell the absolute truth. And if people have questions, let them know what it's really like. Awesome. Well, uh, look, Matt, I really, really appreciate you uh, doing this here. And uh, thank you for your service, man. Uh, it's been great talking with you. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you guys so much. It's been a good time. I want to say thank you again to Matt Vance for joining us on today's episode, and I want to thank you all for listening. Remember, Matt has a book out. It's available on Amazon.com. Just go there and search for Matt Vance or The Funny Side of War for the Sick and Demented. We're going to be putting out one show per month, so if you enjoyed what you heard today and you'd like to hear more, please visit RiverDistrictListener.com and click on Shows and look for The Soldier's Tale. This has been The Soldier's Tale. We thank you for listening. And to those who served, today and every day, we are grateful.